Welcome to our Future Impact podcasts, hosted by Bristol Business School and Bristol Law School at UE Bristol. During the series, we aim to bring you cutting edge research and talk to academics and practitioners about the real issues and future opportunities for businesses today. We'd love to hear what you think of the series and for you to comment on what we discuss. You can do that through our social media channels or by emailing fbl.news at uwe.ac.uk. Welcome to our Future Impact podcast today. And we are joined by two experts in their field uh, from UWE. And we are talking today about safeguarding the metaverse, which is a broad and very, very interesting topic. Um, and we will get some explanation on lots of the terms and terminology as we go through. So I think the first thing to do is to uh, allow our, our experts and our, my colleagues to introduce themselves. So over to you, Verity. Thank you very much. I'm Verity McIntosh. I'm a senior lecturer and researcher in virtual and extended realities here at UE, and I teach a master's in, of the same name, virtual and extended realities, within the faculty that is currently known as ACE, so Arts, Creative Industries and Education. Thanks. And Martina? Hi, uh, I'm Martina Gillen. I'm a senior lecturer, this time in law, um, and my expertise is in all fields of internet and technology regulation with a particular eye to intellectual property, but also because of my research interests, public law style issues, so human rights and safeguarding. Brilliant. So very, very topical to have you both here with us today. And I think we're all going to learn lots about the metaverse. And I think that's where we're going to start as well, just so that I think people will have different levels of understanding. So Verity, are you happy to kind of give us a bit of an introduction on basically what's meant by the metaverse. Sure. Yeah, it's a term that's been really doing the rounds recently and, and getting a lot of media attention. And um, one of the things that seems common to it is that nobody really agrees on what it is. So I can give you kind of my version of what, what I think we're talking about today as a bit of a frame to help us to move through the conversation. We're all very used to interacting with the internet through rectangular devices, whether that be uh, on a laptop, on a computer, on a mobile phone. It's a sort of familiar paradigm and we're becoming much more kind of culturally accustomed to how to interface with information and data and to socialise and to communicate through the internet. What we're talking about with the metaverse is what's imagined to be the next frontier for the, for the internet, which is a much more spatial environment, a much more 3D environment, somewhere that rather than sort of looking at a screen, you find yourself present within that space. So it's something that will have a number of different access points, but is largely talked about in terms of how you might experience it using something like a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality device. So allowing you to be present within a kind of an all-encompassing spatial environment, somewhere you might visit, somewhere you might feel present and move around and interact with people in these sort of interconnected, interoperable spaces. You might yourself be an avatar, you might meet other avatars, you might interact in different ways. But the difference being very much that rather than being sort of a physical person looking at a screen, the blending between your own self and this navigable internet becomes much more kind of boundaryless. A lot of the conversation has been funneled towards the artists formerly known as Facebook as they, they did a big sort of dramatic rebrand of their company in October last year that you might be aware of. They've, they are now called Meta. Facebook is a product of Meta, but Meta is now this sort of umbrella company. And a lot of that is because they're making a quite significant investment and sort of speculating that the metaverse is going to be the next place for the tech industry. And so they want to kind of have an early in into that space to be able to define it to a certain extent. You know, their name is 
is really <laughs> um, prompted what has caused a lot of people to sort of settle on this term metaverse, whereas prior, previous to that, it was sort of cluttering around with spatial computing, 3D internet, Web3, metaverse, multiverse, blah, 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 lots and lots and lots of terms. So it's kind of coalesced around this term partly due to the sort of ability of Facebook to kind of characterize the space in a way that's prompting more of a conversation at the mainstream media level. But it's not just Facebook, and Facebook is certainly not the only people interested, and with any luck, they won't be the only people involved. So it's a really early moment. Um, They have a particular commercial interest in this space. They have a particular view about what that might be, but that's certainly not the only viewpoint. It's unlikely. In fact, it's, it's a stated aim of theirs that they will not be the only players involved. And it looks likely that the majority of the tech companies and um, a number of international governments and players around the world are looking at how we might shape this new frontier, currently known as the metaverse, that might uh, that might give us a, a new version of a sort of embodied internet. Thanks, Verity. And so, Martina, from a legal point of view, in terms of things like jurisdiction and intellectual property, where do we stand with the fact that we're dealing with something that, that's not, not real, the virtual? Okay, in some senses, these are perpetual problems that hover around digital spaces for law all the time. I think one of the issues is, as Verity has really clearly said, the degree of immersion that could potentially happen with a metaverse-style technology means that the user will experience this in a way that causes them to feel that jurisdiction should be seamless, that property rights should be respected in the same way as they would be in any other space. And that's potentially problematic because from a legal perspective, we still view it as being about the technology. Regulation views virtual spaces in a very different way. And it still causes problems for regulation that, for example, the website that I feel currently that I'm accessing here in the UK might be created and owned by a company in, say, Australia, but actually hosted and designed by a company in Taiwan. Now, as a matter of law, you then have potentially the behaviours going on in three competing jurisdictions, and we basically, at the moment, have potential legal games in all those jurisdictions to control, which are ironed out by various kinds of agreements and things like that. But this space will, while retaining that technical infrastructure cause the user's mind to think that that shouldn't be a problem. So I think step one is for regulators to emphasize that a lot of those issues will still be in play and that there will be problems with norms and behaviors perhaps percolating through jurisdictions that they're going to have issues controlling. In a way, we could almost go back to talking about the old kind of Wild West homesteading model that we used in the early days of the Internet, because this is going to exacerbate that difficulty again that, that actually we had in relatively settled legal terms. Um, so that, that's jurisdiction. And then IP follows that. And to some extent, there is a broader degree of international agreement on intellectual property rights. But virtual property has proven problematic because it's difficult to value. It's sometimes hard to understand the full impact of its loss to its to its owner. And also I would have questions about sort of interoperability and technology if too strong 
intellectual property rights protections were actually built into this space. And I think I think at the moment, actually, um, one of the key things to say is that even though this is corporate owned and corporate controlled at this stage, the regulatory controls, it's very much modelling that early phase of actually where the power is coming is coming from tech, not from law. Um, and there's a whole there's a whole series of analysis on this. And if you're interested in it, I would look at the work of somebody like Lawrence Lessig or something like that to think about actually how is regulation getting into these spaces. But but preliminary as an opening issue, I think we've got a problem with the fact that this will reopen an old wound, raise old questions from a legal perspective, because and in particular because it's causing users to think that those national jurisdictional barriers and those traditional controls aren't there. Wow, so it's a va- it's a vast topic, obviously, and it's it emerging, I guess, as well. So, Verity, just coming back to something you mentioned, um, I suppose potentially some people will have encountered the metaverse, if you like, at the moment um, through games. Could you talk a bit more about kind of the difference in the access and immersion in the metaverse versus gaming? Absolutely. So, as I say, there's there's no one kind of commonly understood definition of what metaverse might be. And a lot of people are quite convincingly arguing that we already, particularly the younger generation, are quite familiar in metaverse context. So if you think about a metaverse as somewhere that is um, kind of persistent, so whether you're participating in, in it or not, it's carrying on without you, that um, retains a certain amount of information about what you did there last, is multiplayer with lots of different people, then you could point at things like Fortnite and like Roblox that are persistent, massively multiplayer online gaming worlds that have existed for a number of years and that have a certain amount of kind of established behaviors, user identities, things like how you manifest as an avatar. A lot of that stuff is really kind of clearly worked through in those spaces. And one of the things that we're seeing as it moves more towards people accessing these spaces through virtual reality, with things like VR chat, for example, which exists simultaneously as a desktop interface and as a virtual reality experience, some of the the kind of positive and negative behaviors that have emerged through these kind of gaming paradigms are crossing across. Um, So in VR chat, particularly, there's been a number of fantastic sort of uh, investigative journalism pieces recently, a couple that we were involved in with BBC Breakfast and with the Sunday Times as part of a report that we were writing on safeguarding the metaverse, which um, I would encourage our listeners to take a look at. It's um, commissioned by the IET, which is the Institute of Engineering Technology, and it's called Safeguarding the Metaverse. And a lot of this conversation is kind of building on some of those ideas. But when we were doing our fieldwork, we were basically visiting lots of these um, VR chat style spaces. So social VR spaces, some of which exist through virtual reality headsets and some of which exist online. We encountered, as have many of our peers, a really, really high level of harassment behaviours. So that's sort of verbal abuse. People can use their microphones in these spaces. And that tends to sort of form along misogynistic and sexist abuse, especially if you present as as a sort of femme presenting avatar. Lots of homophobia, lots of transphobia, lots of racism. So there is a, a real kind of issue. The um, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate recently published their own results and found that every seven minutes a visitor to these spaces can expect to experience some form of harassment or abuse. So it is endemic in certain, in certain spaces. Um, and there has been a suggestion that partly that has kind of carried through from a gaming behaviour where those kinds of what might be seen as sort of 
priced in banter style griefing behaviors that exist on discord channels and that exist on gaming platforms are experienced certainly commonly in these virtual reality spaces and some would argue much more um, intimately in these spaces because your sense of having a physical body suddenly comes into play so as well as a discord channel sort of shouting at you there's now effectively someone standing very, very close in your within your personal space, making physical gestures towards you and your body, making verbal assaults effectively towards you. And it can be a very, very different experience paradigm. And I think half of the challenge at the moment for regulators is that they, there's a sort of a hard-won understanding about what gaming culture is and where the boundaries are for, for appropriate and inappropriate behaviours. And now here we are in this spatial paradigm where actually the potential for harassment and abuse has, has kind of escalated and amplified through these embodied paradigms. And it's very unclear what to do about it, whose responsibility it is, and how we might kind of protect people's free speech, protect people's ability to express themselves, whilst also protect people's rights not to be harassed in pseudo-public space. So it's a, it's, a, it's a slightly thorny one to try and unpack. It does come back, I think, to this question often of jurisdiction. So at the moment in these kind of proto-metaverse spaces, these social VR spaces, the onus to kind of moderate and monitor these behaviours is largely on the individual who's chosen to participate. There are various kind of moderation tools that you as an individual will have in this space. You can sometimes set a personal space bubble to say, I don't want anyone to come X close to me. You can mute people who are being offensive to you. You can block people from your view if you, if you don't want to have contact with them anymore. You can notionally report in some platforms them to the moderator, but actually the the systems by which that happens are often incredibly opaque and it's very unclear whether anything actually happens when you do that reporting. So all of the onus is on the sort of effectively the victim of this harassment behaviour. It's often quite sort of challenging in the moment if you feel like you're you're being threatened or if you're having a bad time to be able to kind of find your user controls and suddenly become an expert in the safety features. Also, it means that often what you're what you're invited to do is deplete your own experience with no cost to the person who's who's harassing. So there's a lot of responsibility to the individual. The kind of next imagined jurisdiction then is this idea of the community, that if you have a sort of responsible community of often gamers who, who are sort of imagined to be the elders of this space, that they will somehow kind of self-police or that they will moderate the space. It's, a, it's, it's been proven time and time again to be a fiction, not least because it's not a really realistic expectation to ask people who are giving their leisure time to also be the police of a space that they don't get paid for or own. And also when these cultures become quite endemic, it's quite hard for, for you to then rely on those who use the space to police a culture that isn't in evidence. And then I guess the next level of governance is usually the, the platform owner or the game owner themselves who are not terribly well motivated to do anything. And it's an incredibly sort of heavy moderation layer if they did take on responsibility for doing anything about that. So it's very patchy in terms of what they do and don't do. Often they won't sort of um, explicitly uh, disclose what their moderation practices are because there's a concern that people will then gain those practices, but also there's no accountability really for them. So it's not in their interest to discourage users by blocking them or banning them. And then for me, the, the invisible level, level of governance is this idea of governance. Um, so because of this question of jurisdiction and who has any say in what the platforms do or what the games do or the app owners do, there is really no accountable body outside of the platform itself where you can say, I was treated unreasonably. I've had my IP stolen. I've been harassed. I've been signed up to a fraudulent process. I've been groomed for this this or that behavior there's any number of different things that that are kind of unreportable because there is no accountable body 
And in the UK, there's an effort at the moment to try and identify who that accountable body would be. Uh, the online safety bill, which has just been delayed due to current government shenanigans, is part of an attempt to identify coherent bodies that can respond when there are complaints of illegality or harassment or both. And it looks likely that you, the UK is going to go for Ofcom. Uh, the European Union's got a number of different institutions that will be interested in this as a response. But the international response is quite um, regional and quite specific to each legislature. And it is quite difficult to know how any one sort of government authority can have a meaningful play into these spaces that are inherently kind of beyond global boundaries. Mm. And Martina, from sort of the legal perspective, have you got any comments or, or, or where do we stand currently with security and privacy and, and policy? I think that Verity has encapsulated the problem quite beautifully. And from my perspective, as someone whose focus is on that invisible layer, I think it's actually really helpful to see such a clear case study of why this is problematic, because essentially governments are still running a Westphalian model. That is to say that they're interested in what they can control because it happens inside their physical jurisdiction. With ordinary internet behaviours outside the metaverse, um, and I want to tip my hat to Neil Stevenson for that term, by the way, because that's what made me fall in love with this idea. Outside the, the metaverse, we're still really, really hugely struggling to deal with jurisdictional issues and in particular to get a handle on what the relationship between formal regulatory governance should be and the companies which own these platforms. So I, I think that at the moment there is a technical lever in the hands of the companies to control the behavior of their users, which as Verity said, for a variety of commercial and technical reasons, they are very unlikely to want to use. And then a lever in the hands of government about you know, permitting operation and the conditions under which companies can operate inside their jurisdiction that is not being used so well because there's not a clear international picture. So it's every individual jurisdictional government against a massive international corporation. Um, so it's, it's a picture of patchworks that are not necessarily functioning very effectively. From the perspective then of the everyday user, that means that what my rights might be, what my right to privacy might be, what my understanding of how secure this platform would be for issues like payments, for the, its general kind of cybersecurity hygiene, for want of a better phrase. All of those things are, again, I think, very opaque. They'll be buried in the terms of service of the company. How many people read or understand those, I think, is, is a well-known problem. And the emphasis will be placed on the individual. And I think, actually, I want to say something that will seem a little odd, so bear with me. We've adopted this idea of, you know, worrying in this space about free speech. We've picked up a very individualistic idea about self-responsibility. All of those, I think, to some extent are leeching from American culture, which is also where gaming culture, as we understand it, is coming from. It might be an unpopular way of thinking about it now, but maybe we want to Europeanize some of these ideas, you know, freedom of expression, that there are limits, that there are boundaries, that there are collective social responsibilities that go beyond, you know, my individual experience. I think right now we're at a, a very 
difficult point because we don't have good law for internet spaces in this social sense. We're very good at business online. The internal market of the EU has done amazing work on making sure the business can, can function well. It's only now coming alive to kind of the social issues around this. And we're seeing mushrooming globally, these kind of online safety or online harms bills coming around in individual jurisdictions. But, but we're at a situation where we don't have good, clear law for these social issues. And the onus is being placed on the individual. And I think the positive thing to take out of this is that this is a point where we could start using that governmental lever. Not everything has already been put in place. It hasn't got away from us yet. So now is the time to act. Certainly, if I was looking at this and thinking, as an individual, how do I operate in this space? I would be operating with extreme caution because it's not somewhere where I can have an expectation of accountability or control beyond what I can do for myself or get out of the company. Thanks, Martina. I, and I just want to come back to that. I know you've talked about this sort of conduct and that kind of thing in the, in this in the metaverse. You know, I'm a I'm a parent. I'm sure some of our listeners are parents. It's like it's slightly alarming. So, can you talk just a little more about kind of the near term harm type issues um, with the metaverse? Yeah, there's a, there's an immediate concern from a, a lot of spaces around the the risks to to young people, particularly um, part of our research for the safeguarding the metaverse report identified that the younger generation now, so I think that's under sixteen year olds, are expected to spend about ten years of their of their future lives within these metaverse spaces. So it's a really pertinent uh, question for their future right now as to what we do uh, in the moment. I guess there's also a concern about how we understand safeguarding for young people right now. The majority of these VR headsets have um, a notional age limit of usually 12 or 13, sometimes higher, uh, which is sort of the recommendation of the manufacturers. But it's been shown time and time again that that's not particularly well known, that often these things are marketed in a very similar way to the way that games consoles are marketed. A lot of the content looks quite um, sort of similar to content that is marketed to to young people. So a large percentage of the user base right now across the world of um, people using VR headsets is people who are effectively too young to be doing so, according to the the recommendations of the manufacturers and of uh, organisations like the NSPCC in the UK. And what this tends mean is that there's very little barrier for people who are uh, accessing these metaverse spaces to then sort of suddenly find themselves in social environments that are effectively like public squares. They're sort of privately owned public squares, effectively, where anyone who's chosen to can walk into these spaces. Very often you will have adults with very young children who don't who aren't known to each other so you effectively have unsupervised children in very adult spaces and unfortunately we are seeing multiple instances of adults behaving very poorly to, to young children lots of use of sexualized language lots of encouragement to take part and to emulate adults behaviors we are finding older children are effectively kind of bullying younger children it's effectively a, a completely kind of unmonitored space. So there's already a, a lack of understanding about what it means to to give a young person kind of um, un, unmoderated access to these spaces, which is effectively a kind of an open portal to, to socialise with other people without any level of moderation. And that's a, that's a literacy issue. There's, there's a real kind of gap of 
um, any sort of information for parents who want to give their children positive experiences of these new technologies and want to kind of satisfy their creative and technical curiosity. But there's very little distinction made often between things that are age appropriate and things that are not. And zero to, to very, very, very low uh, amounts of checking at platform level in terms of age verification of users. So there's a real challenge right now to that. And there's a real question about what the risks are when you think about online grooming behaviors, moving into these more kind of embodied spaces. There's obviously a, a kind of a question there about how that kind of ups the stakes for these sorts of uh, risky behaviors. We also know that there are there are some real sort of issues around the culture of these of these spaces. There's a there's a, a slightly sort of optimistic but still worth thinking about idea that effectively the design of spaces can really influence the expected behaviours of users. So if you're conspicuously and deliberately designing age appropriate spaces that have designed in parental controls that have an assumption that you cast from headset to an external device so a parent can see what's going on, for example, and that you have really clear reporting processes it's presumed that that's a space where any kind of behavior towards a minor that would be considered inappropriate in the real world would also be considered inappropriate here. And unfortunately, these sorts of platforms have kind of launched and proliferated well before any of that conversation has happened in a mainstream way. So it is a bit of a wild west. And I certainly at the moment would not recommend that anyone under, well, 18, frankly, but certainly 13, should be uh, unsupervised in these spaces without a responsible adult kind of effectively doing a recce and exploring the space and deciding what's appropriate and then giving some some opportunity to monitor. It is such a new moment. We're not very equipped to make these decisions uh, societally. And unfortunately, it does. it is slightly running away with us. So yes, there is an opportunity to have really cogent, really thoughtful, future-facing government-level conversations now. But I think it's worth being aware that this isn't just a sort of a future sci-fi possible. This is already something that's happening on a, on a continuous basis. And we, we have a responsibility to get a bit more ahead of it than we are now. I mean, I certainly feel I'm not very good with tech anyway. I certainly feel like an unprepared parent potentially. But um, yeah, I suppose, again, it's emerging. But Martina, we mentioned the online harms bill. Where is that? What What's happening? How likely is it to be sufficient, I suppose? Um, you've been asking the question that lawyers and technologists have been asking for a number of years now. Where is that? <laughs> I'm going to try and encapsulate this briefly. From a legal perspective, there are a number of problems with the model that the online harms bill adopts. And it's certainly, I think most people in the field would agree, is not fully reflective of the concerns that came out in the initial government consultation. Um, the initial government consultation very much focused on our current state of social media, um, as we understand it, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And I think from all our experiences, we'll know that you know, there are difficulties in those spaces. I don't think that the online harms bill is actually going to deliver a workable solution to this, again, because it's focusing very much on a model of using that, a government kind of vicariously using uh, companies as a, as a lever of control. Now, that is a model which works in a range of ways, for a UK system, partially because it favours the UK's co-regulatory approach, which is the UK's standard public law approach to pretty much everything. It also relieves the government of certain technical responsibilities, etc. And it, it looks on one level logical because you're saying you're getting money out of this, so you should be responsible for what happens here. But actually, the amount of data going through these companies, the number of transactions in terms of exchanges and things that they have to monitor is absolutely massive. 
they're trying to wrestle with the fact that there are competing legal norms and behavioral norms across a range of jurisdictions, and they're falling back for expense reasons on use of AIs in making these decisions, all of which is is becoming massively problematic. And I don't think the online harms bill, in whatever form that it eventually emerges from the depths of Parliament, is actually going to address that particularly well, not least because it's working on a kind of, oh, this happened, let's take it down now, a message board, think Twitter style approach, when we know actually already from Twitter experience that just simply taking down the message because it upset you or caused a massive pylon, you know, a week ago isn't actually going to solve the problem. So so um, I, I don't see the online harms bill delivering particularly well for the situation that we're in now. And I don't think its model will have very many elements that we'll want to pick up for this moment of looking at a more immersive, more fully embodied technology in the future. Um, that being said, I think that I don't want to totally rubbish the idea of there being governmental and state and company cooperation and involvement. But I actually think that we need something where the government is significantly more hands on the wheel and less, let's leave this to bodies like Ofcom to develop good practice for companies. Because I think that's too slow a process and it's too nebulous. But equally, we need a massive education program in terms of regulators with regard to this as well. And I think that's one of the really good things that Verity's work has been doing, highlighting these problems. Citizens are unprepared for this kind of technology, and unfortunately, in many instances, so are regulators. So I think that, you know, anything that gets understanding about this kind of experience out there is a good thing. I'll just kind of round that up. So I think that the Online Harms Bill Act, whenever it comes out, which still could be quite some time, probably won't effectively deal with the current state of social media now. And I don't see it producing, other than perhaps some idea of corporate responsibility, maybe being a little bit more ratcheted up in it than it's previously been, anything that we would want to particularly emulate in these new, more intense spaces. Okay. Martina, just another one for you. In terms of thinking about conduct, thinking about those kinds of things in the in the real world, <laughs> when something happens, we sort of, I suppose we gather evidence. We have things we can see, tangible things happen, and, and then people potentially are held accountable for those things. How does evidence, uh, forensics, that kind of stuff, how does that work in the metaverse? Um, again, we're, we're into, uh, you, you're asking a question that lawyers have been asking for quite some time now. Um, I, think, I think that there's two things to bear in mind here. First of all, that the rules about evidence and admissibility apply to digital evidence in exactly the same way as they do any other kind of scientific evidence in court that's the first thing to say that you know the baseline is still the standards embedded in the police and uh, criminal evidence act or base um the problem is that the technology has kind of skipped ahead there is not a good body of technologists skilled with both the right legal knowledge and the right technical knowledge to deal with many new developments so recently for example um, we're seeing a call for people to get a lot of expertise in blockchain um, because, you know, blockchain is being used in some ways positively to ensure smart contracts, but in other ways quite negatively. And um, I know SCL, the Society for Computers and Law, is holding a conference which is looking at the scandals and Ponzi schemes that, you know, blockchain has enabled. And we know we have a problem doing good quality forensics and blockchain because it's a technology 
designed to 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 mitigate against it um to use Verity's phrase the privacy aspect of it and the non-traceable aspect of it was built in now if we take this same idea of a new technology and a forensics understanding gap and add that to potentially what can occur in the metaverse with this much broader range of not just transactional kind of activities or computational activities that we see with blockchain, but actually taking in a social human element as well. Um, I think I think we're we're opening up a massive can of worms that there will be again a massive exacerbation of this problem of expertise gap um, around gathering and using evidence of what occurs in these virtual spaces. Um, and the, and of course the answer is to some extent, well the company has control of this, the company could be you know engaged in this, but Again, do we want to pass over all that control? What is that going to do to general privacy? How are they going to store that information? It raises massive, massive questions that that need very well thought through and cogent answers. I, I want to try and be balanced because on the one hand, it's quite easy to paint the companies as, as difficult or problematic actors in, in these scenarios, but they are also trying to engage with this patchwork of legal jurisdictions. So I think that that probably is priority number one, setting some kind of agreed international standard of what information should be kept and how long and what for within these spaces. Now, the GDPR might be a framework that we can begin to use to do that, uh, conversely, because it sort of sets the, the boundaries of what we should expect to be private and sort of a weird misfile kind of approach to this. But again, at the moment, regulators haven't addressed this particularly well. So I'm going to be a very one-trick lawyer, but to keep saying this is the moment to start thinking about this now. Yeah, so a lot for people to think about, including. So I I wanted to just maybe touch on one more sort of smaller topic before we kind of get some final thoughts from you both. But um, I think we wanted to talk about the digital divide. So I don't know if, Verity, you want to sort of talk about that in terms of, I suppose, the the social side of it, the, the gaming side of it. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about digital divide, this is not just a metaverse thing. This is generally kind of a cultural trend to think about in terms of how the sort of digital transformation that so many nations are experiencing over the last sort of 20, 30, 40, however far back you want to go, where um, these emerging technologies offer kind of transformative effects on how we interact with each other, how we communicate, how we are understood and how we access things like national services and communication and banking you know, there are very few things that you that you can't now sort of access through digital tools. And the digital divide as a concept kind of points to the fact that these things can become the default uh, and sometimes the only way to access these sorts of services. So, for example, during COVID, it was quite difficult to um, check in anywhere if you didn't have a smartphone with a camera that would recognize the QR code because that was the default technology used to support that business of moving around in a, in a managed way. So if you for economic reasons, for social reasons, or just because you didn't want to have that level of technological engagement, you were suddenly excluded from a from a level of society. And I think we are increasingly aware that that is um, impacting. I mean, we've always been aware, but it's been sort of uh, shoved under the, the carpet a bit that that hugely influences people of colour, people who have low economic backgrounds, people who are underprivileged in every other sector of society are likely to be impacted more strongly by this idea of the digital divide, including older people. So we are 
potentially at another point where we see this sort of evolving technology it may it, it seems sort of likely that um in the not too distant future for example jobs will be advertised that you can take part in wherever you are in the world which is often a benefit of these kind of metaverse technologies because it can open up the jobs market to people around the world regardless of whether they're in sort of san francisco or not but the flip to that is if you don't have a robust data connection if you don't have high capacity computing equipment and if you don't have confidence and literacy using these kinds of tools and technologies then actually it's not not accessible to you at all. If you have, for reasons of disability, reasons that sort of screen-based media don't work for you particularly, are you cut out of that entire paradigm? So there's there's a real risk that almost everything about the metaverse kind of accelerates and, and magnifies what we're already seeing with these kind of screen-based systems of, of uh, engagement and access and communication. And some people are starting to, to do some really great research and advocacy around um, accessible routes into the metaverse and how you might think of economic and social models that would support people who are otherwise uh, often left behind to, to kind of take leadership roles and to and to inform the technology development, set the cultures. But these voices are often, you know, inevitably marginalised, almost by definition. So one of one of the things that I guess. I'm really keen to see if government does take an interest in this, is given that they are notionally outside of commercial pressures, that they they explicitly invest in accessible pathways for people who are otherwise marginalised to not just kind of have consultation, but to have leadership roles and to be able to set the frame of what's acceptable and what's needed and what's interesting um, at the point where it's not quite yet fully resolved. Uh, I do think the digital divide can be heavily extended here and, and potentially it could also be narrowed here depending on what, what sort of happens in the next 10 years. I was on a, a roundtable with the EU Parliament recently where they were sort of thinking about some of these questions and I was impressed by quite how bullish they were about the fact that they they weren't accepting the, the kind of presented model. They started talking about a Euroverse where, <laughs> where, the, where the user is empowered to kind of set their own privacy settings. They, they talked about this idea of having a kind of a personally owned Owned wallet of identities that protect your own identity and your privacy and you effectively are the owner of your own data and you only give it away if you so choose and the tech companies don't have a default right to use your behavioral data uh, we should move a tiny bit to the side briefly just to explain that the business model for social media and by extension a lot of what's happening with these metaverse propositions the business model is to understand how we collectively behave the more engagement we have with these platforms, the more likes, the more shares, the more scrolling behaviours we have, the more these platforms are able to interpret that someone like us would do something like this. It's not about individual identification. They're not really interested in that, which is where government falls over sometimes. It's it's rarely interested in the specific individual. It's about someone like me does something like that. And therefore, if I show someone like me something like this, then they'll buy it or they'll click it or they'll share it. And that's the economy there. So in a metaverse space, what you can tell about me is suddenly up a massive order of magnitude. You don't just know what I click and what I share. You know where I walk. You know who I talk to. You know what I say. You know what I look at. You know what I look at for longest. And you know what my pupils do when they dilate when I see something that I like. So the the, the gold mine of the metaverse for these sort of social media companies is the ability to have massively granular information about people's um, habits, their interests, their social their social responses, and these are massively influential data sets that are, you know are the reason why Facebook's piling billions into this and others, of course. But what the what the alternative model that we're starting to hear in certain places suggests is that that data does not default belong to the companies, and so yes, so this idea of de decentralization that suggests that actually the users become much more the owners of their own data and the decision makers in the way that data is used in this sort of decentralized. 
idea of a metaverse as opposed to the presumed terms of service that accompany everything web point, web 2.0 which is the current kind of social media paradigm where everything that you do is presumed to be the property of the platform that that you got for free martina have you have you got anything to add there um yeah i'm going to fill this it's not so much a me saying something is making some observations uh i think that you're absolutely right that Again, we've seen a replication of this model of what's on the individual to do choosing and protection inside the GDPR um, because effectively we are not good at ideas of collectivized rights. So thinking about what's the social impact of massively aggregated data is not something we're doing particularly well at the moment. So all our data protection models are focusing on this idea of curation of granularity of data held on individuals and individual choices. I'm actually really heartened to hear that they're raising those questions about the metaverse now. I'm also a little bit concerned that it's still on that individualized level, but it's the legal mechanisms that we've got. Um, It's what the GDPR does and it's what the principles that we've developed around data protection do. But I think that something around a paradigm shift of thought around this could be really beneficial. Um, The other thing that I want to say in terms of, again, another paradigm shift, is governmental bodies have very traditionally dealt with the digital divide in a kind of buckets and bolts sort of way, um, that they've thought about it in terms of how do I get X technical thing to more citizens in my country? And they might want to think of it more in terms of individual literacies and knowledge flows as well. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's our big message with with this idea of the metaverse, that it is going to massively accelerate and exacerbate all the problems that we currently have. So, again, I think that they need to have some consideration of a broader idea of digital divide and address literacy and disability access issues. And some of that will be around behaviour, some of that will be around technology but they need to have a broader picture in mind than current regulatory frameworks focus on because current regulatory frameworks kind of do, oh, well, we do education in schools and we do buckets and bolts for the broader population. And that's that's not necessarily particularly effective. So I think a, a broader, wider picture of, of what the digital divide actually is would be really, really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for your for your thoughts and, and comments. So I'm I'm just um, aware and I'm, I'm sort of wanting to to round off a little bit. So I'm going to ask each of you the same thing. I'm going to ask you for your potential recommendation or, or in terms of a prioritisation or maybe something around policy. Um, what what would you like kind of a takeaway message to be? A verity. I'll come to you first. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciated what you just said, Martina. Thank you. Um, recommendations. So. I think kind of riffing off what you were just saying about literacy, I think one of the the things that will that will thwart us all is if we all kind of push forward assuming we know best or, or that someone else does. And I think there has to be a, a kind of collective reckoning with the lack of knowledge that we all collectively experience, myself included, and I work in this every day. Um, I think we particularly need to, to think about if we are going to be uh, empowering government bodies, um, civil servants, police potentially, to, to respond and engage with these sorts of things. So thinking about our existing sort of social infrastructure, if we aren't going to anticipate that they have a role to play, there's a, there's a huge literacy gap that is that is not their fault, but we need to address immediately. So policymakers involved right now need to need to spend some time with experts and literally in headsets trying things so that they have some sort of expectation about what's possible and what's coming. 
that needs to then be kind of extended across to be able to kind of build on the media literacies. It's not been a terrible time for, for revolution in media media literacy in sort of primary schools and so on, but it, it's very focused on things like you know, sort of cyberbullying and appropriate content. And it, there's no provision within that at the moment to understand things about these kind of social dynamics that are, that are going to be really pre- present and prevalent for people as they grow up through these technologies. So literacy at an early stage to empower a, a diversity of voices to then shape the sector. At the moment, it is kind of being imagined by dinosaurs who read sci-fi stories in the 90s. No no offence to Neil Stevenson's an excellent book, but a lot of a lot of the metaverse propositions that we're seeing right now are effectively kind of making minority report for some reason, even though that was supposed to be a dystopia. So we need, we need to empower the next generation to have more breadth of vision, to be more critical, to be asking good questions. We're already seeing... With a lot of um, the ways that young people will have a much stronger sense of their own privacy, for example, and want their content to expire at a certain point. You know, we're, we're, there's a trend there that can be exaggerated if we enable that that next generation to contribute to this. I do think there's a slightly more urgent concern around some of the existing harms, and there needs to be a, a feet to the fire moment between a number of different legislative bodies and the tech companies and the way that the sector is evolving. Um, but I think if we can if we can think about literacy and empowerment of not just the usual suspects, then there's there's a chance we we all get to live in a slightly more utopian version than the than the nineties movies might have steered us towards. Thanks, Verity. Thank you. And Martina, what about you? I, I seem to be agreeing with Verity a lot today, but I think it, I think that's a good sign, actually. I think on one hand that uh, absolutely a broader kind of concept of literacy and a much greater focus on literacy from the human interaction kind of aspects of, of this technology, the social aspect of it, which I think has been problematic from a regulatory perspective because regulation doesn't normally regulate human behaviour outside a certain range of harms, which are very much viewed in a on a physical and embodied way which has been a problem for virtual spaces but for me I think my single biggest recommendation would be if you are seeing massive innovation in technology then you need to consider innovation in regulation and not just follow the same established traditional patterns and principles that have been let down before now I'm not suggesting throwing the baby out with the bathwater there may be good ideas there may be good concepts good reasons for having some of the paradigms that we have but we can't continue in the same modes of regulation we can't for example and I realize I'm stabbing at the online safety bill quite a lot um, today but we can't just continue to pile jobs onto the remit of Ofcom every time a, a new technology is developed so I think that we we actually need to sit down and have those educative experiences with governmental regulators and consider a potential paradigm shift in our approach to regulation. Thank you both. It's just so fascinating. It's so fascinating. And it's obviously um, something that we're all going to have to, you know, we'll be using more and we're going to have to learn to understand better. Um, so thank you for sort of starting to open our eyes and, and make us aware of some of the issues and, and things around this. Um, just if anyone wanted to find out more, Verity will make your report available. But are there other places people can go to find information about the metaverse and, and, and some of the legal issues around that? In terms of the legal issues, it's very diffuse. And I think, again, this is one of the things that it's got IP lawyers would look at it from an IP perspective. 
human rights lawyers would look at it from a human rights perspective. A good stop is always the Society for Computers and Law and academic institutions like Bileda who hold bodies of current research that lawyers are doing into these areas. Um, those would be my two recommendations in terms of information. Thanks, Martina. Yeah, thank you. There's um, There's been some recent studies by Ernst & Young and by Deloitte as well, who are starting to kind of try and unpack the applicable legal structures here and to look for gaps. They're not um, the easiest to find, so I can perhaps share some links for the show notes. There's also the um, the roundtable that I mentioned with the EU Parliament that covered some really good ground, uh, including kind of setting out some of the ways they expect that to correlate with existing and future policy. That's available as a transcript and as, an, as a YouTube video. So again, I will share links if anyone wants to dive a little deeper. Fab. We'll make, we'll make all those available when we share the podcast as well. But it only remains really for me to say just thank you both so much for your time um, and your expertise and, and being willing to talk and, and share this information. So much, much appreciated. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to be part of a future impact podcast or would like to comment on anything we've discussed, please do email us at fbl.news at uwe.ac.uk or search Bristol Business School or Bristol Law School on Twitter.